Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to episode 63 of the Reliability Matters podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Doc Brown. Doc Brown brings his more than 30 years of electronics reliability experience to clients of ANSYS. Prior to joining ANSYS, he spent 20 years at Medtronic, where he most recently concentrated on cross-business unit implementation of reliability initiatives for Class III medical devices. He was also responsible for supplier assessment and approval, ongoing supplier audits, failure analysis, corrective actions, MRB, sampling, and ultimately full accountability for quality and reliability of commercial off-the-shelf and custom products and assemblies from a worldwide supplier base. Earlier in his career, Doc also spent time at Sunstrand Data, where he led the implementation of Boeing's Advanced Quality Systems Program and with Olin Aerospace. As a volunteer, he has been involved with ASQ, IEEE, IPC, and SMTA. He was the keynote speaker at the SMTA Cleaning and Coating Conference and won the Best Paper Award at the SMTA Microelectronics Conference. He's taught on the subjects of design for reliability, tin whiskers, statistics, design of experiments, and contributed to standards development. Today's episode is a little different than others. Doc will be sharing a very interesting presentation on the subject of reliability. If you're listening to the audio-only version of this episode, you may want to view the video version so you could see Doc's slide deck. The video version of this episode and several others are available on the Reliability Matters YouTube channel. Now, here's my conversation with Doc Brown. Doc Brown, thanks for joining me today on Reliability Matters. I appreciate you being here. Oh, Mike, it's uh, it's really nice to be with you and uh, and have a chance to... Uh, to take this opportunity to share some lessons learned and lessons lost uh, with the people that are coming up in this field behind me, the younger folks that are soon going to be taking over. Um, some months back, I heard somebody remark, you know, the, the, the old uh, saying, you can't take it with you. And it had me kind of scratching my, my gray beard uh, saying, you know, okay, but really you can take it with you. And, that's, that's the sad thing about being part of the uh, silver tsunami, uh, to use your phrase. Uh, which I, the, which I the, stole from somebody else, by the way. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep passing it down. The, the attributions for footnotes are lost. Exactly. So, uh, uh, you know, once I, I do take a permanent retirement as opposed to my temporary retirement that uh, I took in 2012, uh, all, all the things that I've said and done uh, are likely going to be lost uh, in, in the dustbin of history. So that I can take with me. I don't want to. I want to share frequently and liberally, uh, both inside my organization and outside the organization with the uh, volunteer work I've done with IEEE, SMTA, IPC, those, those kinds of organizations. So kind of like a, a longitudinal, you know, career respective kind of thing. So if we could go to that first slide. So uh, right, right now I am uh, working as part of uh, ANSYS Corporation. ANSYS acquired DFR Solutions about a year and a half ago. Uh, when that merger and acquisition activity came around, uh, my wife kind of elbowed me a bit and says, hey, you know, how many times have you been through this? And uh, so I, I had to count up on my fingers and the answer was nine. 
so throughout my uh, 40 plus year career, I've been through nine merger and acquisition activities. And I have to say that the, uh, the merger activity that ANSYS and DFR Solutions did is far and away the best one I've ever experienced in my career. Uh, those folks really knew what they were doing. They brought us all on board very quickly and crisply. Uh, ANSYS has a wealth of resources that they made available to us. And uh, it, it's been a really excellent, excellent organization to, uh, to be associated with. Uh, Doc, for I someone hope, like I myself. I hope you don't mind if I interrupt, but you mentioned nine yeah. acquisitions. I've long said uh, to my friends who are not in this industry that, that this industry is like a life sentence. Uh, you never, I mean, you leave either in a casket or after winning the lottery, uh, but, but you don't generally leave the industry. Uh, and when you go to trade shows, you see the same people standing in different booths with different badges, but it's the same people. It is a, it is a long, it's a lifer. It's, a, it's, it's definitely a lifer. So what, what, what that would say to the younger folks coming up in, in this business is that it's vitally important to you and to your career that you establish and maintain a good reputation. Because as you move through those kinds of life and career transitions, that's the one lasting enduring legacy that you can hold on to is that reputation. So don't, don't squander it. So I, I've lived and worked in the Seattle area for the vast majority of my career. Uh, as, as a kid growing up, my, my dad was in the Army. We moved around a lot. I had the opportunity to, uh, to learn a bunch of things from a bunch of different people and uh, you know, start my reputation over again. If I messed up with a, a group, then uh, you know, two years later, we'd move to a different town. Uh, we finally uh, somewhat settled in the uh, Seattle area in uh, in the early 60s and at, at that time boeing was the very much the dominant employer uh, in the area so when i went into uh, bswe school in the late 60s uh, boeing was going great guns they had the 737 the 727 the 707 they were working on the 747 and uh, and things looked pretty good for all the engineering disciplines and when I got out of BSWE school four years later, it was a dramatically different situation. One of the real estate agents here in the Seattle area actually put up a sign saying, with the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights. So when it came time for me to start interviewing uh, for an engineering job, uh, there weren't a lot of engineering jobs out there. Uh, my girlfriend's dad was a manager at the John Fluke Corporation, uh, and he could not even get me a courtesy interview. Uh, there at John Fluke. So there were no engineering jobs available anywhere. So it's, it's very similar to the environment a lot of young people are facing these days, you know, coming out of their educational process and looking for their first career. And so I had an opportunity through a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing uh, to start working for the local uh, rocket engine manufacturer. And um, uh, it was not an engineering position. Uh, it was not even a technician position. The position they had open was of an assembler. And so I took that and, uh, and worked in that position for several months. Then a technician position opened up and finally about a year and a half later, uh, an engineering position. So one of the things that they really emphasized with us in the rocket engine business is 
when you come across a problem or a shortcoming, when do you want to deal with that? And the catchphrase that has always stuck in my mind was, do you want to deal with it when the problem shows up or when it blows up? And in the case of the rocket engines, sometimes that blow up is literally true. So the photograph that we're looking at here is uh, one of the, the premier rocket engines that uh, the, the company that I worked at designed, developed, and uh, sold to uh, NASA to go on the two Viking Mars lander vehicles. It was a very interesting project. Uh, it was a non-standard uh, configuration of nozzles. You can see there the nozzles of the rocket engine are very splayed out. And the reason for that was that the uh, Viking Mars landers, unlike the subsequent Mars landers, had no ability to move. Once they were down, they were down and that was it. So a standard rocket nozzle would have so eroded and displaced the soil structures that it would have compromised the science part of the mission. Uh, so the uh, engineers and scientists there came out with that uh, splayed rocket nozzle. Uh, there were three of these on the three corners of the the Viking lander, and it was a fantastic success. Uh, there was a lot of good science, a lot of good pictures that came out of those two landers. So one of the things that I picked up on uh, during the time I was working there uh, was the concept of fitness for use, both in quality and reliability. And they emphasized two parts of that. That was the technical fitness for use, but also the business fitness for use. They had a really excellent, excellent program management office. And one of the things that they emphasized to us there was the concept of the launch window. So if you're trying to go to Mars, that launch window comes around about every two, two and a half years. And that launch window is, for, is open for just a few weeks. So Regardless of your technical proficiency, if you're not adept at the business part of that, if you can't create, assemble, test, and deliver that rocket engine on time or a little early, you might as well not done it at all because you're going to miss that launch window and your next opportunity uh, is, as I said, going to come around in a couple, two, three years. So there was a, a lot of emphasis placed on that. So for those that aren't familiar with how the windshields on jet aircraft work, they're a very complicated structure. Uh, they're quite thick. They're a laminated structure of different glasses and different plastics and different adhesives, different metallizations. So there's metallizations that allow the window to be heated. Uh, typically this would be on a small business jet about one kilowatt per window. On the larger commercial jets, they're about two kilowatts per window. There's a sensing wire that runs around the periphery of the window. And the company that I worked for also made electronics, uh, avionics for commercial and military applications. And one of my first assignments as a young reliability engineer was to lead a failure modes and effects analysis of FAMIA to look at this particular piece of avionics, the windshield temperature controller. And what this controller did was it sensed the temperature of the window and then turned on a pro proportional uh, voltage and current 
uh, to those heating elements within the window to maintain a constant temperature of about 120F. So this had the effect of both keeping the, the windshield defrosted, but also that was the point at which the window was the strongest. So e even if you're uh, uh, on a terrestrial uh, location on an, on an airport, that window is still at 120F. So we went through and we did uh, all of that FAMIA work uh, to the requirements and um, we think, okay, that, that's a good job. We got that all figured out. We did find a couple things. So it, it goes into production, goes into deployment. And a couple years later, uh, there was a customer situation where the windshield cracked. And so we got the controller back to do a failure analysis on. And, and frankly, as the leader of that FAMIA activity, I messed up and messed up severely. That was the closest thing I would ever care to come to for being responsible for a fatality. Fortunately, the windshield did hold in place. Uh, th this is not a picture of that particular one. This is, this is a, a picture that I grabbed off the, uh, the internet. But you can see the fracture patterns. And had that window shattered and, uh, and exploded, uh, the results could have been catastrophic. So what went wrong with that failure modes effects analysis? So what I neglected to consider was what might happen as a consequence of a failure of a failure. And what I mean by that is there was a pulse transformer in, inside that windshield temperature controller that was activated by a power transistor. And we had looked carefully at that and what was going to happen, you know, if that power transistor uh, failed short or some uh, component before that uh, applied the uh, power to the, uh, the gate of that transistor and all of the voltage and current was then applied to that pulse transformer. So what we did not consider was what might happen on the internals of that pulse transformer. And what ended up happening was the high temperature solder that made the connections internal melted and flowed out of that uh, transformer enclosure and dribbled down over the circuit board and shorted the 208 volt 400 hertz power to the sensing wire on the window. And when that happened, uh, the window fractured. Uh, so that, that was, as I said, the closest I would ever care to come to being responsible for a fatality. So in terms of, you know, lessons learned, lessons lost, the, the takeaway from that is you really need to know all the physics and chemistry of, of what's going on and look downstream uh, at, at what the implications of, of those failures could be. The uh, American humorist Will Rogers uh, once remarked that, you know, it, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble, it's what we know that ain't so. And there's a couple things uh, that I'd like to mention uh, during our time together here today. Uh, one uh, thing that we commonly say we know that isn't exactly so is high temperatures will increase failure rates. So you see a lot of testing activities designed to stimulate failures in electronics, and it's widely held that the higher the temperature, the higher the failure rate. Uh, 
Um, that's true in a lot of cases, but not all. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Uh, the other one that I'd like to uh, beat into submission and extinguish uh, that a lot of people still hold to is that when you're soldering your circuit board, that your reflow profile, if you're using a no clean process with a high solids flux, you need to activate that flux. And there's a lot more involved in the physics and chemistry there. And it's, there's a lot more than just assuring that you have the right uh, uh, reflow profile. There was actually an incident that happened on this particular uh, aircraft flight some years back uh, where that windshield did pop out of the plane. And uh, mercifully, there just happened to be a flight attendant uh, standing by in the uh, in the jump seat of the cockpit who reached forward and grabbed the ankles of the captain of the plane. Uh, this was a recreation that was uh, uh, done subsequent to that and was on uh, uh, public television. So uh, as it happened, the uh, uh, co-pilot, the uh, first officer took over uh, quickly and successfully landed the plane. Uh, the captain uh, recovered after spending a, a period of time in the hospital and rehab, went back to work at British Airways and uh, finished out his career many years later at the mandatory retirement age. Uh, that could have been a lot less pleasant. Uh, some years ago, I was at a technical conference and uh, Dr. George Box uh, made a presentation there. And he, he was talking about some of his uh, mathematical models and somebody took him to task and said, Dr. Box, uh, your, your model is wrong. You only included uh, linear effects. You didn't include interactions or quadratic effects. And um, he kind of stroked his chin a bit and he says, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, you're right. Uh, but in essence, all models are wrong and some are useful. So what I'd like to share with you today is some, some models that I have found throughout my career uh, to be quite useful. When I was working at uh, uh, one avionics manufacturer, I was put in part of uh, charge of the uh, Boeing D19000 program, which was the uh, advanced quality and reliability uh, system that uh, Boeing was asking all of its suppliers to use so that they could qualify the 777 aircraft uh, out of the gate as an extended twin operation aircraft. So they could fly that over uh, the Pacific and Atlantic oceans without having to go through a lengthy qualification process uh, in production uh, like the uh, five, seven and six, seven uh, Boeing aircraft did. So as, as part of my responsibilities there, I taught a bunch of statistics and statistical process control classes the first couple classes I taught were to uh, folks that were in the machinist and, uh, and sheet metal shops, and they had a lot of trouble grasping what was going on with uh, alpha beta risk and type one, type two error and uh, signals for uh, activities on uh, when SPC rules were violated. And uh, so long about the time I was preparing for the third class, I realized that, you know, these are real sharp, bright, motivated people. They work with math every single day. They're, they're doing things uh, in the machine shop down to precisions of one-tenth 
uh, or one thousand, what they call one tenth, which was uh, 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 one one tenth of a thousand. So it was ten thousandths of an inch. So re really tight kinds of tolerances that they had to calculate out uh, all the different ways that they could get there. Bottom line is these were not dumb people. Who was dumb was me, the instructor. I hadn't done a, a sufficiently good enough job of explaining conceptually what was going on with these things. So I developed this risk assessment model. So, you know, there, there might be some, uh, some times where this model doesn't work, but I think this is one of those, those useful models. So it's, it's a risk assessment model uh, to help explain what's going on with those uh, statistical types of errors. And fundamentally, what we're looking at here is when, when you're doing something with statistics, in, in essence, you are extracting from the information that you have at hand a perception or a belief. But underlying that is an objective reality, right? So uh, one, one way to kind of look at this, most of us have had some kind of experience uh, either as a pedestrian or as a driver where you come up to some kind of intersection and you're trying to make the decision, is it safe for me to go across? And what you're, you're going to do is you're going to look at uh, what's going on internally with your vehicle and yourself, what's going on externally, you know, what kind of road surface, how good are my tires, what are the weather conditions like? What are the traffic conditions like? And uh, you're gonna integrate and differentiate both in the lay sense of those terms and in the mathematical sense, what's going on and you're gonna make a decision as to whether it's safe to go or not. So you see from the two uh, happy smiley cartoon faces there, uh, if your perception is that it's good and the reality underlying that is it's good, okay, happy smiley, conversely, you know, bad perception, bad reality, okay, that's good. Let's look at those other two corners. So if your perception or belief is that it is not safe to go and the reality is it would have been, you're making what's called a type one error. So what's gonna downflow from that if you make that kind of mistake? Well, you're gonna wait another 20 seconds before you, you cross the traffic, right? On the other hand, if your perception or belief is that it was safe to go and it wasn't, and you proceed on that, well, bad, bad things are gonna happen. In the, um, in the reliability world, uh, we call that situation margin. So what, what you're looking at there is, you know, what, what kind of margin do you have uh, for those risks that you're going to undertake? You know, we, we like to have margin, margin is good. Uh, too much margin is expensive. Uh, not enough margin uh, can be disastrous. So, so I talked earlier about uh, acceleration factors and, uh, and higher temperatures creating higher failure rates. Uh, for, for most materials, processes, and designs, uh, that's true. There's a, a, an equation called the Arrhenius equation that we in the reliability world use to develop those uh, acceleration factors from tests. However, there are also a number of non-trivial situations uh, that are driven by inverse Arrhenius relationships. And uh, largely these are mechanical kinds of things, uh, 
latches, uh, switches, things like that. But there's also an inverse Arrhenius relationship inside CMOS semiconductor. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a subsequent slide. Uh, now, in reality, what you're looking at there is a composite failure rate of, of both failures that happen more often at higher temperatures and failures that are more prone to happen at lower temperatures. So for those of us that have worked in the industry for a while, you've got all kinds of industry standards that we're familiar with and use. So let's say you're, uh, you're working around your house and you're, you're going to build or rebuild uh, a deck. You, one of the first things you're gonna do is uh, go to your city or, or county office uh, and, and get all the standards that are required. Uh, the building codes that you're going to be working with, and it's going to tell you things like, you know, nailing schedules and joists and spans and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to build it to that standard. So this was an unfortunate situation that occurred uh, a few years back at uh, Senior Skip Day, uh, where a bunch of uh, seniors took the day off and they're all happily celebrating. You can see uh, some of the uh, high school seniors there uh, lifting their adult beverage that they probably shouldn't have been consuming. And they were dancing and having a good time. So there was a failure. You can see the deck kind of uh, beginning its collapse there uh, before. And then the after picture shows what happened uh, you know, mercifully there, there were no fatalities or I wouldn't be showing this, but so, so what happened here? It was built to the standard and, and yet it failed. So the underlying supposition behind those building code standards are that the loads on the deck are going to be static loads. That is, they're just going to be dead weights of, of people on the deck or other things on the deck. They do not take into account dynamic loads, that is people moving and dancing, uh, nor do they take into account uh, what's, what's called as uh, reasonably foreseeable misuse. So this is a legal term that we as, as design engineers are required to operate to, that we need to have our designs uh, tailored not only towards the intended use, but also uh, legally foreseeable misuse. So in the simulation world that we work at in, uh, in ANSYS, we have a lot of really excellent, excellent simulation tools that are available. So I, I like to kind of tee this up in, in terms of uh, a catchy little phrase that I'll offer for your consideration, and that is rules versus tools. So design rules are great, they're necessary, but they're not always sufficient. And, and that's where uh, simulation uh, comes into play. One of the areas that I like to uh, look at frequently is uh, because so much of it is available in the public domain are all the uh, air safety improvements that have gone uh, into effect in, in commercial aviation uh, over the decades. Um, so some years ago, my uh, wife and I were watching an old uh, uh, movie in uh, you know, you got uh, uh, an aircraft that's uh, a four-engine uh, propeller reciprocating engine aircraft that's flying from Hawaii to, to San Francisco, and one of the uh, the engines fails, and uh, 
it, uh, vibration is so extreme, it dislodges the engine from its uh, engine mounts and drops down into the airstream, creating a lot of drag. And now the question is, are we going to make it to San Francisco or not? And of course, there's a lot of drama in the movie. You know, we're beyond the point of no return. And, and uh, John Wayne, the hero who's the uh, captain of the aircraft, organizes a bucket brigade of the passengers to get down below in the uh, cargo hold and handle all of the uh, luggage out, individual one piece of luggage at a time. And he heroically holds open the door to the aircraft and they're tossing the luggage out. And, uh, and they, they do make it back safely. So what, what was kind of interesting to me as a reliability professional was, was what was shown in that film was a very plausible thing that took place in commercial aviation back in the late 40s and early 50s. There were a lot of accidents of that and other similar natures that resulted in, uh, in uh, uh, airplanes uh, crashing and, and lives being lost. So what we're looking at here is a graph that the uh, FAA put out a few years back for uh, all uh, Part 121 operations. So that's uh, basically uh, commercial um, aviation. Uh, so those are the planes that uh, those of us who travel by air, uh, you see what happened there in the, uh, in the early 50s, uh, a huge safety improvement, largely attributable to uh, instrumentation uh, landing systems. Then subsequent to that, uh, there were more positive controls placed on the movement of, of commercial uh, aircraft, they all had to fly under instrument flight rules. Uh, so there was uh, distance measuring equipment and vertical omni range and those kinds of things. And then later on precision approach. And then uh, subsequent to that, uh, ground proximity warnings, which I worked on uh, and uh, area navigation and uh, the, the, the TCAS terminal uh, control around airports. And with each uh, subsequent change, um, you could see that the uh, accident rates continued to, to go down and down and down. And it, some of this was offered also to general aviation, but general aviation uh, continued to be uh, uh, a little more dangerous than, than commercial aviation. Uh, I had a personal uh, situation that happened to me uh, resulted in a, in a friend of mine uh, making a fatal mistake. Uh, so he and his wife are going to be flying from the Bellevue Airport in Washington State down to Las Vegas. Uh, a friend of theirs was going with them. That friend had much more experience. Uh, there was low-lying fog around that uh, uh, Bellevue Airport, uh, which was located next to uh, Interstate 90. The friend took off and uh, and made it across the highway and uh, was up in the air and radioed uh, back and said, yeah, okay, you know, you can make it too, I made it. Uh, so my friend and his wife took off and they didn't make it. Um, they, they crashed into the tops of trees that were on the, uh, the other side of the interstate. So there's one of those situations of alpha beta risk, right? And how much margin? So the uh, first airplane that, that went, you know, how much did they miss those trees by? You know, was it 20 feet? Was it one foot? Um, 
obviously uh, they had more margin than the second aircraft that, that took off. So that, that's an example of, uh, of a decision where you don't know how much margin you have. One of the things I really like doing uh, working for DFR Solutions and, and now ANSYS is having the opportunity to go out and travel around uh, domestically and internationally and, and talk to clients and customers and see how they are using uh, our, our services and tools. I had a great experience here about five years ago talking to an industrial control customer um, who had some field failures uh, of a particular relay on a board that had a cracked solder joint. And, uh, and that's what encouraged him to, to reach out to us and acquire our Sherlock reliability assessment uh, tool that used uh, reliability physics um, to try to predict those solder joints. And uh, so we worked with him and, and got them to use that, that software package and it not only predicted that that relay was going to fail, but it predicted the actual pin on the relay. So a few years after that, there was a commercial aircraft that uh, had an accident and, uh, and landed in the ocean. Uh, all crew and passengers were lost. It, as I was looking to the publicly available report that came out later, my heart kind of sank because this circuit board was so, so close to that circuit board of uh, the industrial control customer that I talked to just a few years before that. Now, if you look closely here at the board, what you'll see is there are a lot of heavy steel relays located over on the uh, left-hand side and towards the center of this board. And yet the board is only supported on the four corners. You can see the standoffs there. So, this, this circuit board and the rest of the, the boards and, uh, and designs of that particular uh, module uh, all melt, met the standards. And yet, because like the deck that I talked about earlier, didn't take into account the long-term effects of vibration, uh, the solder joint cracked and failed. So, as is usually the case with, uh, with these kinds of incidents, there are multiple causes going on. Uh, so one thing I wanna mention and in, in offer some emphasis on is when you have a return product and it comes back and you, you test it and you can't find the failure, there's a tendency to ascribe that to NTF, no, no trouble found. And what I've emphasized with the people that I've worked with throughout my career is let's not think about it that way. Let's not conceptualize it as no trouble found. Let's conceptualize it and talk about it as trouble not found. And that was the situation with this particular rudder limit control uh, piece of avionics, that there was an intermittent that was caused by this uh, cracking solder joint on the relay. And this had been uh, rejected and tested uh, several times. So it was taken off the aircraft, sent into the avionics shop. Uh, it, it passed, so NTF, let's put it back uh, into service again. So the particular accident that resulted from this, there were multiple causes. There was a lot of uh, weather disturbances uh, going on in the Pacific Ocean at the time. Uh, 
Unfortunately, the captain of that aircraft uh, executed an action that was not uh, part of the flight manual or instructions. So he had been uh, talking to one of the uh, ground support avionics people, and uh, they told him that, you know, one thing that we do here on the ground is when we uh, have things that uh, operate uh, and, and, uh, and don't work and, you know, start to work again, uh, kind of like you do with your Windows computer, right? Uh, you reboot. And that's what we do here on the ground. Uh, we remove the power and reapply the power uh, to the uh, aircraft avionics. That resets everything, and then things start working again. Uh, unfortunately, the, the captain decided to do that in flight. Uh, now, the flight control avionics for uh, all aircraft are very redundant. In this particular aircraft, it was a triple redundant system. Uh, but what happened when he did that in flight, let's pull the circuit breaker and reset everything, is that the voting circuitry uh, couldn't vote anymore because what it did was it, it looked at the triple redundant you know, signals and systems. And if one disagreed, then it discounted that, uh, stayed with the two that, that did agree, and that allowed uh, you to continue flying. However, what happened when he cycled the power to uh, all the avionics on board is that nothing agreed anymore. So the voting system failed that resorted the aircraft to full manual control. At the same time, they were fighting all this weather phenomenon. Um, so like I said, it's a, it's a very complex thing, but at, at the heart, had there not been this fractured solder joint, had there not been this intermittent, uh, we, we wouldn't have had that, that failure and subsequent loss of, uh, of aircraft crew and passengers. So this is a reliability model that I use in almost every presentation that I've given uh, here for the last several years. So what we're, what we're looking at here in, in terms of reliability, um, on the vertical axis are environmental stress. So this would be you know, shock, drop, vibration, high temperature, low temperature, uh, temperature uh, changes uh, you know, going up and down. Uh, humidity, you know, all of those environmental stresses that cause failures in electronics. And along the horizontal axis, what we're looking at is, is product lifetime. So if you look, you know, the upper right-hand quadrant there, uh, high environmental stresses, long product lifetime. So these are, you know, satellites, uh, commercial military aircraft, uh, auto safety, you know, those kinds of things. In the lower left-hand quadrant, uh, we've got things like toys, cell phones, laptops, video games, you know, th those kinds of products. So the products in the lower left quadrant tend to live their lives in more benign environments and, and have shorter uh, product lifetimes. So there's a couple things going on here that I'll, I'll call your attention to. So the, the arrow that you see there, uh, historical technology flow over the last you know, approximately 100 years. So all of these design rules and the processes and materials and the components and those kinds of things were in the old days, uh, largely developed in this upper right-hand quadrant. And if there was anything we in the electronics industry were good at, you know, faster, better, cheaper kind of stuff, right? Uh, was was figuring out uh, 
how to take those expensive yet very highly reliable uh, materials, processes, components, designs, and applying them in, in larger and larger quantity productions to, uh, to more uh, civilian uh, kinds of applications and uses. There was a lot of margin that was built in to that. Um, and so, you know, that was pretty successful. But today what we're looking at is a lot of today's technologies, if not the majority of them, are being developed for use in that lower left-hand quadrant. So what we as design and reliability engineers are faced with is, is taking those materials, processes, components, and designs that were intended for use in that lower left-hand quadrant and dragging them up into the upper right-hand quadrant. So that's a much more difficult set of processes. So if you haven't seen that three-letter acronym before, RCG, it stands for Revenue Center of Gravity. So in the old days, the Revenue Center of Gravity uh, was very well placed in that upper right-hand quadrant. So you, you had uh, companies that were producing the materials and components, uh, doing so to meet those requirements. And today, that's, that's not the case. The Revenue Center of Gravity has shifted down into that lower left-hand quadrant. So we need to pay a lot more attention to uh, what's going on there so we can, we can make those applications uh, more successful. So again, a continuation uh, of the conceptual product space and technology flow model that I developed and am now uh, you know, offering for your consideration and use. So one of the things that people are very much aware of is you know, what has happened in that transition? In the old days, we were dealing with much, much larger geometries. So there were, you know, bigger parts, uh, larger solder joints, things were more spaced out. And today there are much, much smaller geometries. So as designers, you know, we're all pretty much familiar with that. So one thing that is a much smaller geometry now than it used to be in the past is something that as designers, we may not be aware of because it resides in circuit board production. So one of the things that is much, much smaller now than it used to be are the solder spheres. So as a designer, we may or may not be aware of the size of the solder paste particles that are being used to produce the boards that we've designed. So as the parts have gone smaller, as the pads have gotten smaller, the traces have gotten smaller, more and more manufacturers are using smaller and smaller solder paste particles. And the way that this works into uh, reliability is that as you go to smaller and smaller particles, you have more and more surface area, which means that the fluxes that your manufacturing uh, folks are using have to be more active fluxes to keep the oxygen in the air away from the solder joints so that the solder paste can melt and form an, a nice good uh, intermetallic bond between your, your components and your pads on the board. So uh, that means, as I said, more active fluxes, which means we have to pay more attention to, uh, to what's going on in, in terms of uh, cleanliness. Uh, a couple years ago, I was offered the opportunity to make the uh, keynote address at the uh, SMTA uh, IPC uh, Cleaning and Coating Conference. 
And the topic I was asked to address is the reliability of cleanliness effects in the medical device industry. Now, uh, when I started my uh, career in uh, medical devices uh, about 20 years ago, uh, we were very much captured by the move fast and break things approach to uh, reliability. And it worked pretty well in those days. We, we had a, uh, a medical device that was used by paramedics out in the field, which is essentially a, a very uh, high stress environment. It's uncontrolled in terms of humidity, uh, temperature cycling, shock drop vibration, um, that sort of thing. So we wanted to make our, our new model extremely reliable, very tough, very rugged. Um, so using that move fast and break things kind of approach, uh, what we did is uh, uh, we did both in lab tests, but we also did what uh, we called was the uh, salesperson's toss. So we took this uh, uh, pre-hospital medical device and tossed it up into the air and it would arc over and land on the floor and clatter, clatter, clatter. And then we'd uh, open the thing up and see what broke and change the design, you know, put in a standoff or two, use some more encapsulation, use some more epoxy, uh, test, analyze, fix, test, analyze, fix. The result of that was an extremely popular, very reliable, very rugged product. And today we can't do that kind of thing. Um, there's a more competition in that and in other industries. And that's what's leading to uh, pervasive modeling and simulation uh, where you can develop mathematical models of what's going on both statically and dynamically and, and do that you know, subsequent cycles of model and remodel uh, before you actually go out and do uh, physical testing. So uh, I, I developed what I call this medical model of reliability. And, and uh, I, I kind of call that the, the gold standard. So there's, there's three big aspects to that, uh, knowledge, decision, and actions, uh, how we know things. So in, in medicine, that's anatomy, physiology, that sort of thing. Uh, decisions, you know, when you go into your healthcare practitioner, you'll get, you know, sign symptoms, uh, imaging, whether that's in x-ray or acoustic, um, chemistry, you know, you'll do lab tests, that kind of thing. And then the actions that your healthcare practitioner uh, will take will, will follow along, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, diagnosis, prognosis, consultation, treatment, follow-up plan, all, all that kind of stuff. And I call this the gold standard because it gives a lot of insight into what's going on. There are analogies that you can draw in each one of those areas. Uh, as to how we're doing our designs and how we're doing our manufacturing. So anatomy, that would be how the designs are, are put together. Physiology, that would be you know, how they're, they're working. Uh, sign symptoms imaging, that's the kind of stuff that we do in a failure analysis lab, um, so on and so forth. So, so if, if you think about it and conceptualize it in, in those kinds of ways, you, you get a lot of insight, which means you have foresight as opposed to hindsight. So I talked earlier about margin and how much margin do you have? So when, when we're using a, a low solids uh, flux at a no clean process, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of opportunity for, for things to go wrong there. 
if if we look at this uh, particular graphic, what we're seeing is you know the uh, a circuit board uh, with some traces that I've labeled uh, anode and cathode. So uh, uh, plus on the left, minus on the right. So you have an electric field that's being formed. But what you may not be aware of is that even under low humidity environments, uh, there are monolayers of water that are on the surface of your board material. And <clears throat> these little rascals, as I've shown here in the picture, they, they kind of line up like little magnets uh, un under the effects of that electrical field. So uh, even if you have what you think to be a dry situation, when you get down and look at it microscopically, you've actually got liquid water um, on the surface of that board. So you can have a situation that, uh, you can uh, have uh, electrochemical migration taking place uh, or leakage paths uh, that are being formed. Um, so the, the kind of key takeaway there is you, you don't really know how much margin you've got. And if you think about this in terms of uh, alpha beta risk, you know whether you're gonna take off uh, with that plane or whether you're not gonna take off with that plane uh, calls for some circumspection when it comes to the decision that you're making, whether you're going to, to clean or not. So a few years ago, I was at uh, an electronics uh, materials conference uh, in Europe, uh, and I ran into uh, uh, Barry Dunn, who I was, I was familiar with his work. He did a lot of work in tin whiskers and that sort of thing when he was working at the European Space Agency. And uh, he gave me a gold nugget. And so I'd like to offer that up for, for your consideration, use, and, and application. And what he had done, he and his team, when uh, he was at the European Space Agency, they were trying to quantify uh, cleaning effectiveness. So we all know when it comes to uh, cleaning boards that it's easier to clean under components where you have a lot of spacing. But what absolutely stunned me was that what they had shown was that the cleaning effectiveness is, goes up as a function of the fourth power of the spacing. So for those of us that, uh, you know, engineers that were used to working with, uh, with math and mathematical models, uh, we know intuitively uh, what that fourth power means. Uh, but the folks that we're talking to in uh, other organizations and other disciplines uh, may not. So uh, what I've offered for you here is, is you look at the, uh, the, the one where it's a square function, that's a little bit of a ramp, uh, cubic function goes up, and the fourth power goes up even much more dramatically. Uh, so the implications of that is when, when you're designing your circuit boards and you're selecting your components, uh, for cleaning purposes, you need to fight for every little micron that you can to get better and better spacing so that your cleaning effectiveness um, is, is enhanced instead of uh, degraded. So, so some work that was done by uh, Bev Christian and his team at uh, Research in Motion and, and BlackBerry that they published a few years ago where they looked at component cleanliness. So in, in previous episodes of the Reliability Matters podcast, the guests have talked about you know, what, one of the things that you need to, to be thinking about in terms of cleanliness and cleaning 
is if you make a decision not to clean, you're making a decision to leave all the contaminants in place that your boards and components arrive with. And so uh, what they found out in their research is there were significant shortcomings in component cleanliness, the most serious of which was uh, methane sulfonic acid or MSA. So that's a widely used chemical compound that's used in, uh, in plating, particular tin plating uh, for the leads and pads of components. And the reason that that chemical is used is it ionizes extremely well. And so if, if your component manufacturer is not doing a good job of cleaning and rinsing, uh, you're, you're going to find uh, that uh, MSA methane uh, sulfonic acid as an unfortunate remnant uh, on your components. And we, we have seen this, uh, this has been reported in, uh, in more than one paper that's, that's been written uh, about component cleanliness. So um, the last thing that I'd like to mention about component cleanliness uh, and circuit boards and cleaning, uh, there was some work that was done by Phil Isaacs and his team at IBM. Uh, there was a series of uh, three papers uh, that were presented at the uh, SMTA Microelectronics Conference over the past few years. And what they showed conclusively is that it's a, it's a myth that there is that uh, three-stage step of, of uh, uh, so-called uh, activation uh, of, um, of evaporation, polymerization, and encapsulation. So doing the differential scanning calorimity, they could not find any evidence at all that that second step was taking place. So the implication for that is, is that, that there is nothing that goes on in that um, reflow process that makes those residues benign. What makes them benign is that third step of encapsulation. So what they showed conclusively is you need to process your boards uh, so that you have a benign glassy state on the residue of, of those uh, low solids or, or no clean fluxes. Um, so th uh, th those are good resources. Um, what, what they've showed conclusively was that it's not enough to have the temperature ramp on your reflow uh, get to that high temperature. So if you have components, uh, QFN components as an example, uh, ferrite filter components is another, uh, where the uh, uh, outgassing and, um, and temperature processing does not reach into the interior of the components, that the, um, the uh, uh, fluxes uh, on the uh, outside edges tend to seal off the uh, evaporation from the inside. So you're left with a, a gloopy, goopy uh, flux residue mess that has not been fully processed. So uh, the current state of thinking there is, let's, let's not talk about this uh, in, in, in terms of of activation, let's talk about it in terms of uh, passivation. So talk a little bit about uh, reliability physics and the CMOS failure mechanism. 
there was a Reliability Matters podcast here uh, a few weeks back that sort of introduced the topic of CMOS failures. Uh, we at ANSYS have done a lot of work on this. Um, there was an IEEE uh, Spectrum article that came out a few years ago uh, that proposed, maybe it's even time to consider what they called a, a silicon odometer. So here are the four major uh, mechanisms, electromigration, uh, oxide breakdown, hot carriers, and uh, um, IS temperature instabilities, uh, bathtub curve, and you break it out into uh, the, the kinds of failures that are going on inside uh, CMOS, here's what it kind of looks like. So you have those four things that I talked about here uh, just a moment ago, uh, all adding up. Now, I mentioned earlier that one of these um, is an inverse Arrhenius uh, equation um, uh, failure mechanism when you go out and model it. And, and that's the uh, uh, hot carrier injection. And so if, if you're going to do testing for CMOS, uh, it's not the case that in, you know, high temperatures will, will accelerate all of those mechanisms. So that's a situation where modeling uh, is, is a much more appropriate thing to use so that you, you capture both those Arrhenius and inverse Arrhenius uh, uh, failure mechanisms. So we're, we're all familiar uh, with, uh, as I said uh, earlier, you know, decreasing geometries that takes place in semiconductors as well. As well. You have uh, smaller and smaller uh, process nodes. Uh, I, I was at the uh, International Reliability Physics Conference here a couple years ago, got this great graphic that you're seeing on the right-hand side of your screen there. So the established uh, simulation paradigm uh, looks at those gates in, in terms of, of solid structures. But what we're seeing now is you get down to smaller and smaller gates down to you know, nine millimeter, nanometers and smaller. You're actually at the point where uh, individual atoms are, are at play uh, in the operation in, in, the, uh, in the failure. So that, I think that's a, a pretty nice little graphic that shows that you know, you get down to those smaller uh, gate geometries, and uh, as the author of, of this paper shows, uh, your your typical gate geometries are in the terms of you know 30 by 30 by 30 atoms for crying out loud. I mean, that's just absolutely stunning. So, also at that uh, reliability uh, physics conference, uh, there was a paper presented that that showed uh, what radiation looks like. Um, for increasing uh, altitude. So as you can see there, you know, you're, you're down at sea level, uh, relative uh, radiation uh, flux densities are small, you go up higher and higher in altitude, you get more and more uh, cosmic radiation impinging on your semiconductors. The smaller and smaller those semiconductor features are, the more susceptible they are to that uh, ionizing radiation. So you'll, you'll notice here, that this uh, stops at uh, 4,000 meters, um, which is, uh, as I remember, is like, I don't know, 10 or 12,000 feet, something like that. Um, but what are the altitudes that 
commercial to military aircraft fly out. Well, that's, you know, 35, 40,000 feet. So you can see from the shape of that curve that as you get up to those kinds of operational altitudes, you have increasingly higher uh, rates of radiation impingement that, that can affect um, your, your CMOS elements. So uh, here, here was um, a presentation that was made at the SMTA uh, Microelectronics Conference in 2017. Uh, so again, you know, when, when things go wrong in commercial aircraft, there's never a single cause, there are multiple causes, uh, but fundamentally what happened in this particular uh, situation was, was most likely attributable uh, to radiation at altitude. Uh, so there was an upset, uh, uh, not terribly dissimilar to the one that I talked about earlier with the, the power cycling. Uh, in this case, the upset led to uh, the autopilots disengaging and um, followed by two uncommanded pitch down maneuvers that were, were very violent. So uh, it knocked the passengers around. You can see uh, uh, holes there in, uh, in the overhead structures with uh, you know, panels popping out and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so again, you know, here's a situation where, where modeling can come to the fore. Um, uh, DFR uh, ANSYS is now working with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency on being able to, to model radiation effects at CMOS and we'll be incorporating that into uh, our uh, pervasive simulation software here uh, shortly. So, um, um, th that's it. Thanks for uh, your attention. Um, so uh, I, I hope we've uh, passed along some interesting things here that people can take advantage of. Doc, thank you very much. That was exceptionally informative. And I have to say, um, you made me quite happy because of all of your aviation analogies and comparisons. I, I'm an aviation geek. Uh, ah. <laughs> and uh, do, you, do you fly? Are you, are you a pilot? Uh, uh, no, I had to give up my, uh, my certification for, for medical reasons, but, uh, yeah, but you used to fly. Uh, I, I, yes, you, yeah, you've yeah, got, yeah. you've got that. <laughs> I can tell, I can tell one pilot to another. I, uh, I'm also a, a pilot, although I'm not current anymore, but, um, I stopped flying a lot of years ago, but when, when it, I live in near Los Angeles and, you know, being in the sky is, is a whole lot of fun, but being in the sky in a super controlled airspace is no fun. It's work, <laughs> right? So, um, I remember so once what's working that? in that, uh, you were in that TCAS environment then around absolutely. Uh, airports. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I would do is get out of Dodge. I would, I would, I would take off out of our local airport and, and fly to an area that's not controlled. And I, I do remember once, um, in an, I wasn't have no radar following. And, and I remember, coming so close to another plane in the sky that I could recognize the pilot. I mean, it was seared into my head. It, mm. I could see the look of fright on his face and my face. And, and then my training kicked in. You know, they say, if it looks like you're going to hit another plane, the best thing is not to do anything because <laughs> what you don't want to do is increase your envelope. You know, you don't, you don't want to, you know, chances are big sky roll. Chances are there's a lot of sky. There's not a lot of plane. You're not going to hit anybody, but Oh, that was a test of the big sky roll. So I'm happy to, uh, that was kind of one of my last flights. But anyway. Um, <laughs> it's the, a wise the, man who knows his limits. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Although I'm still the the one person whenever I hear something in the air is I'm I'm the guy looking up and you know I can tell them what type of aircraft it is and and I can spot the livery and and, and tell you what airline it is. I'm just that geek. But anyway, um, a couple of takeaways for me uh, uh, that I really appreciated. One is kind of the the movement of the letters NTF to uh, TNF. I think that is a, a much better way to look at it because clearly if something was returned back to the factory because it wasn't working, there is trouble. So I do love the idea of, of uh, trouble not found as opposed to no trouble found. And in my... Um, um, webinars and stuff like that, I, I have another acronym whenever there's NTF and I, I, I and I call it WTF because they can't, <laughs> they can't duplicate the problem. That's, that is a, you know, a test engineer's worst nightmare is, is they can't duplicate it. The, the problem exists outside of the lab, but it doesn't exist inside the lab. And that's um, especially the case with uh, avionics. The one thing you don't want to do is add to the air crew's uh, uh, stress uh, and, and add to their uh, uncertainty and concern, um, you know, that, that's a bad situation. Sure. They have enough to do up there. Absolutely. And then the last kind of takeaway, um, it, it, I'll throw in a little anecdote. You were talking about um, flux activation, encapsulation, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, our friends at Foresight uh, Analytical Laboratories in Kokomo, Indiana, recently uh, did some uh, testing. And... Um, they ran uh, boards, uh, I think they were B-52 boards, test boards. They, cool. they ran these test boards uh, at uh, the proper peak temperature for the materials they were using, which was 250 degrees C, uh, and, and then extracted um, whatever residues there was from under various components, uh, subjected them to ion chromatography, established the baseline, uh, and it was a no-clean flux. And then they, they lowered the reflow temperature by 10 degrees, 4%, 10 degrees, and then ran the same tests and found increases in detectable contamination up to 600% under various oh, components. <laughs> 10 degrees, right? So, so um, you know, most, most reflow profiles are pretty well under control. Um, but if one is running no clean and maybe you're – profiling is maybe your oven's not quite that good maybe your vents are dirty whatever um whatever could cause that reflow temperature to be off a little bit you know they're they're running no clean and not cleaning under the kind of promise that the residues are are, are benign and and um uh, but all it takes is a four percent variance in reflow temp peak reflow temperature and that argument is out the window. So it, it was just an interesting look at that, you know. Um, well, that and, gets, and I, you know, back, back to the concept of margin. You know, if you're in a situation where you don't absolutely positively know how much margin you have, uh, that's a reason for, for being a little more circumspect, for being a little more conservative, for, for doing a good job of cleaning, rinsing, and drying. Right, right. Um, I'm, I'm glad you said rinsing and drying. Drying, most people forget about. Um, but as you all know, in your uh, uh, ANSYS world and, and uh, uh, reliability world, that uh, calf is a big issue. Conductive anodic filament uh, is, a, is it a measurable issue in our industry. And, and uh, you can't clean your way out of a calf problem, but you can certainly dry your way, at least for a while, out of a calf problem. So I, 
I think drying is just as important. All or wash, rinse, dry are important. Rinse is probably the most important. Dry certainly is, is up there. It's often overlooked. Uh, Doc Brown, thank you so much for being my guest today. This was exceptionally informative. And, um, and it's a departure from the way we normally do these, you know, the, these podcasts. Normally it's uh, question answer, it's conversation, but I really appreciate the whole presentation. That was, that was amazing. Uh, for my audience who are in their cars listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify um, and, and are experiencing a little FOMO, a little fear of missing out from not seeing the slides, uh, feel free to go onto our Reliability Matters YouTube channel and this presentation complete with Doc Brown slides uh, will be on there. So you'll be able to see what uh, Doc was talking about. Doc, thank you so much. Um, I hope uh, I hope you stay well, stay healthy in these crazy times. Hopefully, I, you're, you're probably a bit grounded like everyone else, right? Not traveling uh, too much? Un unpleasantly so, but we'll, we'll, we'll get out of that this year. You know, we're, we're all on the, the list to get our uh, inoculations and uh, vaccinations. And so uh, hopefully we'll be able to put that behind us. Yeah, it's funny that, that when we when I first I travel a lot as you do as I as I first kind of locked down, it was nice. It was nice to, not to have to get on an airplane, not to have to get up early, and you know find parking at the airport and all the things we do, right? Um, and now I kind of miss even the worst days of travel. I'm starting to miss that now, right? I'm starting to miss crowded airplanes next to smelly people, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to that level of normalcy. Um, well, thanks again for being my guest, Doc. Yeah, yeah, I, you're my a pleasure. Of information and, and thanks for making this available for generations of engineers to come. I really appreciate it. It, it was a great opportunity, Mike. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send them to my email address, Mike at MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Once again, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And most importantly, keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.